Welcome to the LBCF podcast. Our vision is to learn to live and love like Jesus, where we live, work, and play. To find out more about our community, you can visit us at lbcf.org. We hope you are encouraged and challenged by this teaching from our community. Good morning, LBCF. If I haven't met you yet, uh, my name is Danny uh, Cortez. I'm one of the co-pastors here at LBCF, and I'm part of the teaching team. If you're um, not on our Facebook page, I encourage you to um, uh, join um, if you're on Facebook. Uh, But yesterday, I posted um, something on our page um, that I'd like to begin with, and I, I wrote this. Hi, church. I wanted to give a trigger warning for my message at church tomorrow. I will be speaking on the topic of forgiveness. I know this is a a place of pain for many of us, so this topic can bring up all sorts of emotions. So please take care of yourself and be aware that this might not be something you're ready to engage in. I also know that I will be speaking from a place of my own experience, and I don't want anyone to think that I have figured out what forgiveness is and that I have the answers. But my prayer is that we would be able to glean from how God works through the messiness of human relationships to bring us each closer to living like Jesus. And so I say this because um, I don't want to pretend that I know the relationship traumas that um, any of you have been through. Um, I also know that I'm coming from a very Gen X context of relationships that feeds into my values and desires and ways of connecting to community. In other words, the things I share today are like uniquely my story and I'm I'm not trying to prescribe to you what you ought to do, but rather describe to you my own process of trying to figure out what forgiveness looks like in my own life. And hopefully that we can all somehow glean um, from that Um, I don't want anyone to come out of here and say that I'm going to do exactly what Pastor Danny does because that's not the intention at all. Um, And I know in messages about forgiveness, it's easy to, like, be dismissive of people's pain and use shame and coercion um, along the commandments to just force people into forgiveness when they're not even ready. And I know that um, forgiveness is a process. Um, And even talking about this, there's a lot of anxiety and hesitancy as I've prepared for this because I I don't want to theologize this and make anyone just, anyone's life harder. And so, um, you know, please um, take that into consideration. And a second trigger warning uh, I realized that I need to give, I will be... Now, I'm going to share about my son's own coming out story and the trauma related to that. And so, if at any time you feel like you have to step outside, please do so. But let me uh, begin in prayer. God, thank you for this morning uh, that you have allowed us to gather. Thank you in all the ways that you hold us, that you give us permission to be in journey, to be in process. And I pray that somehow your spirit would once again work in our lives. Um, That God, we would learn from one another. Um, That we would seek to understand. That we would seek to especially know the heart of Jesus, that we might live and love like Jesus. And so bless our time, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.
It was in 2014 that uh, my son, our son, our third son, 15 years old at the time, came up to my wife and I, Abby, she's sitting here in the front, and, and said that he was ready to come out. And he told us that instead of like coming out to like all sorts of different people, um, he wanted to post a video on YouTube just to do it at once. And I was like, what? Are you kidding me? Um, but I wanted to honor my son's coming out process. It was his story to tell. It was his journey. And as parents, we needed to honor that. And so, you know, he decided to make this what turned out to be a 14-minute video that he, he put on YouTube. And in that video, he talked about his struggle with sexuality and faith and coming to terms with his own acceptance of himself. And then he also included that his dad accepted him. And when I saw the preview of that video, I, I remember thinking, okay, the church is going to see this. And I know it's going to be tough. But he posted it, and one of the fears I had especially was how would his own community receive it? And a couple of days later, he was about to attend the party of his friends. And I remember driving him uh, to Whittier and just being so scared and nervous to see what the reception might be. Because at this point, all his friends had already seen the video. And as he got out of my car, he walked up the driveway and immediately a rush of his friends came around him, circled around him and embraced him. And I was sitting in the car weeping and feeling like, Everything is going to be okay. And even after that, some friends surprised them at home. They called me and asked if they could, like, come into our house before Drew came home, and they sang him a song, unconditional. They wanted to verbalize to him that no matter what, we will stand by you, we will love you. Unfortunately, that beautiful moment didn't last very long. Almost immediately, the administration from my son's uh, Christian school that was related to a, a high school program of a Christian university in La Mirada. The admin um, sent us an email saying that Drew's video was creating a problem. A lot of the parents were angry, confused. Um, it was complicating the, the things at the school, and they asked us to take the video down. And I was looking at this email and thinking, what is this? And so I decided to write back and tell them how proud I was of my son, that he was finally courageous enough to be himself, to come out after a long struggle. What you're asking me to do is to tell my son to go back into the closet. And I will not do that to my son. And so they said, okay, um, you know, we, we can't force you to do that, but we want you to know that we've decided to um, put these rules into place. That if your son does anything wrong, he will be immediately expelled. And then I discovered later that there was a new um, policy put in place that Boys couldn't go to the restroom in pairs anymore. They had to go in threes. 
<laughs> I was like, okay, that's, that's a little strange. And then they also told us that the admin had to meet with my wife and I and Drew at least once a month and also have this other parents to hold us accountable. And I was thinking, accountable for what? My son wasn't even dating. He had just come out. But for some reason, they, they wanted to keep these, this control over us. And I was wondering why they were trying to single out my son that day. But what really broke my heart, when was, our son came home um, just looking so sad. And he said one of his best friends came up to him and told him, my mom said, I can't hang out with you anymore. And our son Drew asked, why? And she shared to him because the administration of the school told my mom that it would be wise to not spend time with Drew. And I couldn't believe what I was hearing, so I decided to contact the administration myself. And I asked them, is this true? And they said, yes. We thought it would be wise to like, tell the parents to like, take care of your kids. And slowly, one by one, um, friends started distancing themselves from him. The invitations to events and hangouts stopped immediately. He was treated like a leper, a disease, someone that needed to be isolated. Just weeks before, he was being loved unconditionally and sung songs. And the next moment, they all ghosted him. He was left alone. And of course, he was eventually expelled because someone overheard him saying something bad about administration. And I saw my son go into depression. He was alone. He had no friends. And as parents, my wife and I were just so heartbroken. It was so hard for him to, to struggle with his own sexuality and his faith. And to have him experience this devastation was so hard. But it wasn't just at school. It was at my own church that I was a pastor of, Baptist Church where the leaders from the pulpit was calling out my son by name and using the word abomination. He blamed himself for all the problems that were happening at church. Not long after that, my son developed a, an infection from an insect bite. And so it was turning red, so I decided to bring him to urgent care. And the urgent care doctor prescribed him some antibiotics. But it was clear that it wasn't going away. So I brought him to his primary care doctor. And at once she saw that this was not good, and she told me, that you need to bring him to ER immediately. He needs to be admitted. And she made the phone calls to make sure that that happened. And as we went to ER, it was discovered that he was going through toxic shock. He got admitted, and he was put on IV antibiotics. Um, 
You went into sepsis. And thankfully, after a week, um, his fever had turned. Um, he got discharged. But as soon as we got home, we noticed that a rash began appearing again in his body. And the fever had returned. And so we went back to the hospital. And the doctors again put him on another round of the strongest antibiotics. But this time he went back into the toxic shock, into the sepsis, and his body began to crash. And I remember being in ICU. All the alarms were were just beeping. The doctor came in, and she looked like she had panic in her face. All his, his vital signs were bottoming out. His blood pressure was going down. She was yelling at the nurses, trying to stabilize my son. And I remember looking at my son and thinking, I'm going to lose him. I thought my son was about to die. But somehow the doctor was able to bring him back around. And at the end of that round of antibiotics, they again declared that he was okay and he was okay to go home. But Abby and I were like now in like fear. Are you sure? And they said, yeah, it's, it's, he's good to go. But as soon as we turned home, his fever returned and my wife and I lost it. And all the doctors were perplexed. They were wondering, why is this happening? They were consulting with different infectious disease doctors. They were telling us that we're giving him the best medication we could. We don't know why this is happening. But I knew why. Because I had talked to my son. And my son had told me, Dad, I really don't want to live. I don't care if I die. I knew my son wasn't fighting this because he had lost the will to live. And as we were in the hospital this third time, we were getting these emails, right? We were getting the emails from his parents' friends telling us that they were praying for him. But they were concerned for him. And I was like, just F you, get out of here. I was so angry that this was happening to my son. We had sent him into this Christian program, thinking that this would be a place where our son would be able to flourish. But somehow, scripture was used to create fear. And this fear created this isolation and rejection of my son that led him into depression and this this lack of will to fight. And I was angry. And at this point, I don't, I don't want to mischaracterize people of differing beliefs. I, I want to say straight off the bat, not everyone is like this. We have so many friends that hold different places of belief that have been so generous to us, to Drew, to our family. But in this particular situation, scripture was weaponized. 
and violence was enacted upon our son to the point of death. And as my mind began to spiral, I remember just wishing harm on the people, on the community that was causing this depression on my son. I remember wanting bad things to happen to them. I wanted them to experience the same pain I was experiencing that moment. And as my mind kept spiraling into these things, I remember thinking, and just struggling and wondering why my heart was becoming so dark. And I didn't want to be put down. I didn't want to be chained in this hatred. And so I began to pray that God would somehow connect me to the life of Jesus. And so I decided to immerse myself, myself in the teachings of Christ. And I thought what better place to go than to the Sermon on the Mount. Where Jesus teaches the subversive message. That somehow taught how to break free from the chain of violence and fear and hate and vengeance. And somehow be transferred over into the kingdom of God and Jesus in his word, just kind of just jumped out at me. And, and it was Jesus saying, you have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who curse you. And I was like looking at this, these words, thinking, God, this is, this is crazy. How could you say such a thing? But Jesus was trying to teach me, to teach us what the kingdom of God looks like. It is not one of violence and fear and vengeance, but it is one of love and peacemaking. It is one of blessing. And Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are men when they reproach you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward. And so when I consider Jesus' words, it's so counterintuitive. It's so subversive, it's scandalous, and it's even annoying. But somehow I knew that there was something here that, that was true. Richard Rohr eloquently stated these words. He said, if we cannot find a way to make our wounds into sacred wounds, we invariably become cynical, negative, and bitter. This is the storyline of many of the greatest novels, myths, and stories of every culture. If we do not transform our pain, we will most assuredly transmit it, usually to those closest to us. That if we don't do something with our pain, if it isn't transformed, somehow that pain will be transmitted 
And when it can't be transmitted to the people who have perpetrated violence against us, it will be transmitted to the people around us in some form, some fashion. It will come out in the form of anger and impatience. It will come out to our children, to our spouses, to our parents, to our coworkers. And I knew that somehow this cycle, this chain of violence had to be stopped in me. And so in Jesus' words, I saw that somehow forgiveness looked like prayer. When Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And I think about Christ, Jesus and preaching the Sermon on the Mount was the very person that believed in what he said. Because on the cross, as Jesus was surrounded by an avalanche of powers and principalities, the worst injustices that human government could bring upon a righteous man, the worst injustice that leaders could do in trying to snuff out the truth because of jealousy, the devil himself tried to unleash every ounce of evil upon the Son of Man like a hole that couldn't be filled Jesus on the cross absorbed the greatest violence that humankind and the devil could enact. And in absorbing it, he transmitted that pain. And on the cross, Jesus was able to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And in case you think this is unique to the story of Jesus, The first martyr of the church, Stephen himself, in Acts chapter 7, when he was being stoned, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then it says he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. And then these two stories, and Jesus and then Stephen Forgiveness looked like prayer. It was a prayer of blessing rather than curse. And I know that I've shared this story before, but I think it's worth repeating because it was a story that was very formative in how I think about prayer and forgiveness. I remember many years ago, I brought two women together who were both friends but had experienced rupture in their relationship. And they had asked me to mediate an attempt towards reconciliation. But as we met at my house, it became clear that this mediation wasn't going anywhere. In fact, the, the hate was escalating. And honestly, by the end of the night, we were just tired. and Everyone was just ready to go home. I was ready to ask them to just end the meeting. And so I decided, knowing that this wasn't going anywhere, instead of praying for these women in front of me, I asked them to pray for one another. And I don't know what inspired me to ask that question. 
But when I asked that question, I remember both of them looking at me like, ah, we really don't want to do that. But they didn't say no. And so as the first person began to pray, it became clear that the prayer felt awkward and cumbersome. Every word was being thought out. And right before me was this woman who was very much comfortable before in prayer at a loss for words, trying to figure out what to say and how to pray for someone that has hurt me deeply. And as the words first began to come out slowly and hesitantly, there began this transformation. God, will you bless my sister? God, will you help us to work towards reconciliation? God, will you give grace? And as she began to pray those prayers, the other person received it as prayer and began to reciprocate. And tears began to flow. And I don't know what happened, but somehow, some way, I discovered that when you begin to pray for your enemy, a blessing rather than a curse, God begins to transform your life. And so I began to pray that. Every email that I received, every post that I got on social media that attacked me or my family, I decided to one by one pray for each person by name. And as our church went through the discernment process and about half the people left my church, I remember being engaged in this letter writing campaign and just saying, hey, I just want you to know that I still love you and I want to be connected to you. And my wife began to, and I began to invite people over for dinner. Unfortunately, there was hardly anyone that responded. But there was this one couple about three years later, because of a follow-up email that I gave, that said, okay, Danny, we'll meet with you. And so we were at the Starbucks, I remember, in La Habra. And I got there early. There was this outdoor courtyard. I wanted to make sure that we had a, a table. And I saw them from a distance parking, and as I saw them walking towards me, I could tell that there was no bounce that they were walking kind of like uptight. And as they got closer to me, before they could even sit down, the man said, Danny, I want you to know that last night I almost emailed you back and said, hey, we don't want to come because we don't, we don't think this, this meeting will go anywhere, but we felt like we couldn't ignore your emails anymore. And so they sat down. And they said to me, we see 
you on Facebook and how you are traveling all over the country. And you are being invited to speak all, all these places. And we want you to know that we believe that Satan is using you to destroy our country. And so we don't know what this meeting is about. Because we don't know how we can have a relationship with you. And one of the first things I remember realizing was before when we were together at church, they always addressed me as Pastor Danny. And now they were just addressing me simply as Danny. And it's, you know, I, I don't mind being addressed as Danny, but in this situation, it just sounded strange because they had never addressed me like this before. It was clear they no longer saw me as pastor. And so we began to move into small talk. It became so uncomfortable. And you could tell they wanted to leave. And so as they were making their way out, I remember just saying, okay, wait, just one, one last thing before you leave. And I put my hands on the table and I look down. And I said, I can understand if you no longer see me as a pastor and therefore no longer address me as your pastor. I can also understand if you no longer see me as your friend and therefore no longer love me as your, as your friend. But my question is, will you be willing to love me as your enemy? There was silence. So we don't understand. What do you mean? I said, I want you to know that I love you. But there is something between us that is preventing us from loving one another. I don't expect you to agree with me, but somehow... Some way, scripture calls me towards love, and there's something compelling me towards this. I want to know that if you're in the hospital, that there is nothing between us that will prevent me from coming and visiting you. I want to know if there's something that happens to me, that there's nothing that will prevent you from coming to bring me a meal. But this thing, this rupture that has happened between us has prevented love from being transacted. And because of that, the kingdom of God is not here. What does it mean for us who hold these different beliefs to be able to say that we will do whatever it takes to love one another? Would you love me as an enemy? Because if that's what it means, then I'm willing to receive that.
And I know for me in my process of discernment and liberation, this was the path that I felt like God was leading me to take. In my own unique situation, and the way my wife and I viewed our relationships, and the way our culture formed us to hold on with tenacity to the relationships around us. And like I said before, I don't want you to go away thinking this is what you have to do because some of you need to take care of yourself and draw clear boundaries. I don't want you to think that you have to live in the trauma of relationships. But there is something to be said when Jesus says, bless those who persecute you. How do we free ourselves from this chain of violence and hatred and vengeance? If that's what's coming up in your heart, then I pray that we would all allow the Lord to bring us in process, to move us by his spirit into the life of Jesus, into understanding, as Jesus said, God, forgive them for they know not what they do, that somehow, like I'm always aware when people wrong me, and it made me also consider that there are so many ways that I have wronged other people that I am so unaware of. That as a pastor for many years, I know that I have taught things that has done, done a disservice. I think about the messages that must have come across as misogynistic and, and patriarchal to so many women and have kept them in relationships that they shouldn't have been in. And I, I know that I've done so many things that I've been aware of. And I know so many of you have been, have been hurt by pastors in your life. And as one of those pastors... And I know they can't be here right now, but on behalf of pastors, I want to say to you that I am so sorry for any of you that have been met with, with teachings that have, have shamed you, have told you that you are not worthy, that you don't belong, that you can't teach. Messages that counseling sessions that have communicated the disbelief of your pain. In the same way that I am so unaware of the things I have done to others, and I long for forgiveness, I long for freedom. God asked me to consider granting forgiveness to others.
And Lord, I'm learning about this, and it's like this never-ending thing, right? Because I, I can't say that every moment I'm free from this. There's still moments where I go back, and there's a rage that wells up. But I know when I enter into this process of the kingdom of God, I experience peace and I see that love can be realized. That in my body, in each of our bodies, the kingdom of God can be present on earth as it is in heaven. And so I pray that in the season of Lent, in considering what it means to live like Jesus, as we come to the table now, as we move into communion and the worship team can come up, as Jesus says, remember me, remember his sufferings, remember the life of Christ, remember his teachings. Remember that as Jesus hung on the cross, he said the violence stops here. And instead of calling down a legion of angels to enact retribution, Jesus offered up forgiveness. But as you consider this, please be gentle with yourself. Please allow yourself to be in process. And if people have come to mind, if there is pain going on, know that we have a prayer team up front who wants to pray for you. Let us confess our sins to one another. So Father, we thank you for this, this morning. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for, for your words that bring us healing, that bring forgiveness, brings restoration, reconciliation. And so God, may you help us to be more like you in our own process, in our own journey. In Christ's name.